Hello and welcome to He's Dropping at the Movies. I'm Mike. And I'm Jose. And today we're talking about Burt Lancaster, which is an obsession of yours recently. So why don't you tell us why why we're talking about Burt Lancaster? Yeah, so first of all, this is a, a kind of special episode of Eavesdropping because it's really on a film star rather than on a film review or in a discussion of, of an individual film. And the reason why is because ever since the pandemic began, I had this project to look at Yuzu Kawashimi films, but also I was looking at noir and then my Kawashimi films never arrived and I thought, oh, well, I'll turn Burt Lancaster into a project because... You know, he'd done this whole series of very interesting noir films in the late 40s. And actually, it has become an obsession. The more I find out about him and his career, the more interesting I find him. You begin to see patternings in the career. Um, You begin to see a kind of a politics. Obviously, you also see a star aging and kind of, you know, going from box office status to kind of iconic status and being used kind of differently. But I think... Well, two things, really, that um, are key to at least my obsession. Three. Um, the first is that he's a pleasure to look at, right? He's a very beautiful man, right, who's got immense athletic grace. Yeah, like watching him move is a pleasure. But then there's a lot of films in which, you know, he does his own stunts, so he jumps and leaps or falls out of a tree, Right, and he was a former acrobat, so all of those things are done with incredible grace. It's like watching a stair dancing or something. It's just beautiful uh, to see. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that watching these films, you recognize the politics, right? So Burt Lancaster was what they called a union settlement kid. Yeah, kind of the union settlement was kind of like um, a social movement you know, for self-improvement, for communities building uh, uh, community houses uh, in which poor kids could study or do sports or, yeah, kind of to educate them, but also keep them off the streets, right? And Burt Lancaster is a product of that, right? He grew up in East Harlem, right, which, you know, it used to be the immigrant neighborhood where all the poor Italians lived in the tenements and so on. That's where he grew up. Right. And the union uh, house, the settlement house was kind of something that he found key to his formation, you know, and he was basically a left wing person throughout his life. Yeah, kind of, you know, uh, he was never a communist, a member of the Communist Party or anything like that. But, you know, he, he was, I suppose, the product of a Depression era Franklin D. Roosevelt kind of ethos. Yeah. He knew where he came from and he was very conscious of the need of community and unions and so on, right? Kind of very unusual kind of, you know, for a top star uh, of um, the 1950s. And then the third thing that interests me is that you can chart about, you know, 40 years of changes in Hollywood in terms of both production, distribution, exhibition, you know, aesthetics, through charting Burt Lancaster's career through that. So, you know, he became a star in his very first film, The Killers, uh, in 1946. And 1946 was the height of the studio era, right? It was, you know, the year which had most admissions. I think they had 90 million admissions that year, 
right? It was still the mainstream cultural event. People went to the movies once, twice a week. Yeah, kind of, you know, there was radio. Yeah, but not much else. Television hadn't come in, uh, certainly in a mass way in the United States, right? So uh, he is somebody who began there, but almost immediately became a different type of star because, you know, in 1948, there was the Paramount Decree. Yeah, kind of uh, studios were asked to divest themselves of theater, right? Kind of, you know, monopolistic practices where particular studios, you know, controlled production, distribution, exhibition were disbanded, right? So he comes in at that very moment and he comes in on contract, yeah, to uh, uh, an independent producer, Hal Wallace, working from Paramount, yeah, but with his own control and manages, you know, from his very first contract to get the right to do one picture on his own. Yeah. So, you know, he 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 actually had freedom to do one one film on his own. And actually that freedom was exercised almost immediately. So a few years after making his debut, he under Norma Productions produced uh, um, Wash the Blood Off My Hands. Yeah, kind of. That Kiss the Blood Off My Hands. So Kiss the Blood of My Hands. So it's a very intriguing story, right? And, and also the last thing I want to add to this is that he became a star quite late. Yeah, he was 33 years old yeah, when he made his, you know, his, his first film, really. And it was a complete accident. Uh, you know, an agent, he was visiting his girlfriend, yeah, who worked as a secretary, uh, you know, and a producer saw him in an elevator and asked him to try out for a play. He tried out for the play. It was a big flop, but, you know, it was enough to get him offered contracts, you know, from like all the majors. Right. And what's interesting about his trajectory, you know, one of the things that fascinates me about kind of the formation of his character, because you wonder who is this person? And this person is somebody who grew up in the Depression. He was born in 1913. So, you know, the Depression started in 1929. The height of the Depression was in 1933, when he was 20, right? And he went off and joined the circus, yeah? And if you think about what kind of a life a circus acrobat has in the middle of the Depression, where, you know, they go from town to town, sometimes they get paid, sometimes they don't. You know, he's mixing with all the um, subalterns of society, all the people, you know, who are weird. Yeah, what kind of a person joins the circus, right? Yeah, it's a kind of a mentality. So he's, he's in some ways exposed to the best and the worst that the culture has to offer, right? People's cruelty to vagrants and, yeah, kind of, and being out of money in the depression and, yeah, but also the collective, you know, life of the circus, yeah, where, you know, kind of, you might not get paid one week, but whatever you have, you share, yeah? So when Burt Lancaster becomes a career, the first three or four, five films he does are noirs, right? So, you know, he does uh, uh, The Killers, first of all, uh, and then Crisscross, uh, and then Brute Force, which is a prison film, uh, and uh, uh, Kiss the Blood of My Hands, and Desert Fury, which is kind of like a noir, but in color. And of course, you know, they are kind of, you know, expressive of a generation and a mood, right? Like Gore Vidal writes very interestingly about, you know, the post-war period, kind of, you know, soldiers coming back from war, many of them suffering, you know, trauma or suffering from trauma, right? Um, things like jobs and housing and everything kind of being unsettled, 
you know, the sexual freedom that there was in those post-war years where people, you know, the lingering idea that you were still about to die was very much in the air. The difficulty of going back into, you know, previous relationships or forging new ones with people who hadn't experienced what, you know, the men had experienced in the war. Yeah, noir is a kind of a context or a yeah, matrix for the, the, the expression of all of those things. And Burt Lancaster is arguably the biggest star working in that genre with, I, I would argue that, you know, um, well, The Killers is kind of like an acknowledged masterpiece, you know, but then Criss Cross, Desert Fury, Fury uh, Brute Force, and Kiss the Blood of My Hands uh, are, you know, a kind of real cult films. They're, they're films that cinephiles love, yeah? Uh, so, so all of those films that he did in the immediate post-war period are still alive in at least a sector of the culture. Was he a bigger noir star than Bogart? Uh, no. I mean, Bogart, you know, was the bigger star in this because, you know, it's like when somebody begins to be a big star. I mean, you could argue that films like um, The Killers uh, and Brute Force had bigger a box office than some of the Bogart films of the late 80s, you know, but Bogart as a star and the salaries he commanded and, you know, uh, his fame and so on had obviously benefited from the last 15 years of stardom. So, so, so Bogart was the bigger star, but uh, Burt Lancaster was the biggest of a new breed of male stars, yeah, of which, you know, others would be people like Rock... Um, uh, Kirk Douglas, yeah, uh, who came to a kind of inhabit, you know, that that noir world. I think certainly in the fifties, you know, he's a superstar, right? Like, you know, I, actually, it's very interesting because I was looking at the top film stars of the period, and it's very interesting how you know the popular imagination is often at odds with historical kind of fact. Right. So the biggest, you know, I, I was looking at this um, list online uh, uh, and they say, you know, the 15 top adjust, you know, the top stars in terms of box office. The top one is James Stewart. Yeah. Then it's Charlton Heston, William Holden, Rock Hudson, Dean Martin. And then there's Burt Lancaster. Right. So, you know, he's in the top kind of seven stars of the 50s. Uh, um and it's kind of, you know, but there's a move already from, you know, the period of post-war adjustment and then Eisenhower America, yeah, uh, uh, of the 1950s, where he develops a different type of persona, you know, because what he does, beginning with The Flame and the Arrow, uh, a Jacques Tourneur film from 1950, is he does what would become to be called muscles and teeth roll, right? Because, you know, he was a very big man, blonde, wasp, you know, muscly, very athletic, right? And um, he put, you know, his experience being an ac a circus acrobat, you know, to use in action films, right? So, you know, kind of, these are like Douglas Fairbanks films of the 1920s, you know, like, you know, Swashbucklers, the Crimson Pirate, but also a Robin Hoodie type thing, like, you know, the Flame and the Arrow. Yeah. Um, 
and then things like South Sea dramas, like His Majesty O'Keefe, his body's always on display, and his athleticism is always on display. And they're actually like real boys' films, yeah. I mean, you know, I'm sure kind of women like them as well, but they're all like, you know, uh, fun action adventure, yeah, in which kind of the doing of heroic deeds. Yeah, there's a whole generation of people who, you know, who are now probably 70, but who grew up with, you know, this joyful, cheery presence of Lancaster doing heroic deeds, you know, with grace, yeah? Um, so that's another kind of important component of, of his persona, just, you know, the ability of, you know, doing these amazing things with your body, right, in these entertainments, yeah? Yeah, who, who really kind of, uh, whose only intention is to delight, right, and to delight with, you know, physical grace, yeah. Uh, so I love that about it. I, I, mean, I love the Crimson Pirate and I love the Flame and the Arrow, right, uh, you know, because they present that. It's all like, gung-ho, cheerio, <laughs> yeah, let's, let's jump off the mast, right, let's get the pirates, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so um, I, think, I think they're fabulous. And the other thing about this period is he was a political person, yeah? So he, he was uh, in the committee for the first uh, amendment that fought the House of Un-American Activities hearings. You know, he was one of the last people to drop off because, you know, Bogart and Bacall, like, you know, as soon as they were accused of being communists, they immediately backed off, right? And so I didn't know that, you know, this. Um, he stood by it until he was almost alone in doing it, right? Because actually, you know, he'd never belonged to any of those clubs and, you know, to, and he'd been to the army and nobody could, you know, could uh, 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 stain him in that way. And then because, you know, he continued uh, producing his own films, he actually hired a lot of blacklisted writers, right? So, and he was somebody, I was thinking, you know, if this had been a French film star instead of an American one, they would have written their autobiography and there would have been five chapters on how they'd fought <laughs> for, you know, human rights and, you know, kind of how the government had persecuted them. You know, with Lancaster, you hear none of that. But the fact is, he was denied a passport, yeah, because of his political activities, right? He couldn't travel out of the country, yeah, uh, for most of the 50s. He had to get special dispensation to go into Mexico to do Veracruz. And then, in fact, you know, subsequently, I think, by 57 or 58, he did have to sign a document, you know, uh, saying that he wasn't a communist. But that's all he did. He didn't name names. He didn't let himself get bullied. He hired people. You know, it's kind of, it's really admirable, you know, in the midst of like this incredible anti-communist hysteria, anti-left hysteria, where the government is persecuting people, you know, for, for beliefs that they have a right to hold, that he stood his ground. Yeah, he becomes increasingly admirable. As well as being the foremost independent producer of the 1950s. Yeah, you know, with several companies. So Norm, uh, Hecht Lancaster, and then Hecht Hill Lancaster. Yeah, all producing not only uh, Lancaster's own films or many of Lancaster's own films for uh, United Artists uh, uh, distribution, but also producing independent films like Marty, right? So, you know, he was the producer of Marty, which was, you know, a new realist aesthetic written by Paddy Shayevsky that won the Oscar, right? You know, so kind of an extraordinary figure, I think. And the other thing that I admire 
him tremendously for in the 1950s is, you know, he wasn't considered a good actor, right? He was considered like muscles and teeth, yeah? Uh, but nonetheless, in 19, I forget whether it's 1948, he did All My Sons, which was, you know, an Arthur Miller adaptation. In 1952, he did Come Back Little Sheba, which was William Hinch, yeah? Uh, then he did um, The Rose Tattoo, which is Williams. Uh, and then he did, I'm trying now to find it, um, Separate Tables, which is uh, a Terence Radigan play, right? So all of the top post-war writers, yeah, all of the people who had transformed, you know, the American stage, and then also Radigan, who was English, right? He tried his hand at all of them, yeah, kind of, you know, usually with some big female star, yeah, uh, and then he kind of tried to push himself into acting better and acting in more complex plays and lending his box office value so that, you know, these artsy things could be produced. And in fact, they were all popular successes, yeah, with kind of very difficult material, right? And he was sneered at in most of them, right? Like, yeah, that he wasn't good enough. He was just like, yeah, so the women all got the Oscars and he got at best you know, good try reviews, yeah? yeah. <laughs> it's like, he's, he's trying hard. A, A for effort, you know, C for achievement. Is that the kind yeah. of... <laughs> so, uh, let me... I feel almost like I've been lecturing a bit. So, you know, you saw some of these films. So, what did you think of them? And what do you think of him? Yeah, so you... I said, because I, I wasn't really familiar with Burton Lancaster. As you say, he, he his reputation is one of not being a particularly good actor. And that's really how I was familiar with him, if I was at all familiar with him, you know? I kind of knew of him as the the big smile, the teeth, the laugh, you know, enjoying himself on screen, that kind of thing. Um, yes. But he won an Oscar. And Elmer Gantry, which is one of the films you recommended I watch, um, is the film I most enjoyed. And I think it's easily the best performance that he gave in the six five six films that, that that I watched in the last few days of his um and one one I suppose it, the reason I think he works so well in it is because um Elmer Gantry is a showman you know and and yes. so is Burt Lancaster and actually it rather reminds me of when we saw the greatest showman and I said Hugh Jackman fits that role so perfectly because you always feel like Hugh Jackman showing off to you. There's something very similar about about yeah. Burt Lancaster and Elmer Gantry. Except Burt Lancaster, I think is, is is you know there's no comparison for me because I get your point. Yeah, kind of they like showing off, but the thing about Burt Lancaster and Elmer Gantry is that you also see the sleazy carny element. Yeah, yeah? the hucksterism. Yeah, the kind of you know. I mean, that scene where he takes Gene Simmons under the pier. Yeah, she doesn't want to have sex. Mm. Yeah, it's almost like, oh, no, no, I'll respect you. I like it. Yeah. Blah, blah, blah. yeah, and then she falls, right? That's so, so that kind of sleazy hucksterism charm, mm. yeah, he conveys that so beautifully in that film. I oh, think. yeah, I mean, yeah, in terms of, in terms of what the films do, the, you know, that is not something that The Greatest Showman is interested in conveying at all. Um, any kind of complexity to that character although that's not to say I don't think Hugh Jackman himself could do it you know I mean he's a good actor but um, I mean it's clearly a superior film Elmer Gantry and yeah. wants to show more complexity in its 
in its main character. And it, but I mean, it's so it's so clear why this was an Oscar-winning performance just from watching it. You know, he's yes. doing so much, and there is so much variety in what he's doing, and there is depth in it, and he's absolutely captivating yes. the whole way through. I find him captivating in everything, um, and again, he's he was a very intelligent man, right? Uh, and he makes such interesting choices. So, you know, from this period that we're talking about, yeah, from 1961, um, he makes Judgment at Nuremberg, which is, you know, about holding Germans accountable for Nazism. Uh, you know, it's, it's almost a little bit like, you know, uh, you know, uh, uh, putting them on trial. <laughs> uh so he contributes to that. It's not a very good film. It's a Stanley Kramer film. Yeah, but it's a moral choice, right? Then he makes The Young Savages yeah, with John Frankenheimer, which is about juvenile uh, uh, delinquency. He makes Seven Days in May, which is about, you know, a potential internal fascist coup uh, in the United States. Uh, he makes A Child is Waiting, which is about special needs uh, children, yeah, kind of, 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 of various kinds, yeah? Disabled children dis you, with different disabilities. And that's a John Cassavetes film, right? Kind of, you know, this is one film after another, and The Birdman of Alcatraz, yeah, which is, you know, about this guy who was imprisoned and who within prison kind of manages to create a fulfilling intellectual and, you know, moral life for himself, right? I mean, kind of, you know, they're incredible choices. Yeah, they all have a social purpose. They all take on this idea of American cinema as kind of a national theater. Yeah, with the with the purpose of sparking ideas on important social subjects. That's what you see in all of these films, you know, from the early 1960s. Some are better and some are worse. You know, there's the old dictum, if you want to send a message, use Western Union. But actually, there's something heroic about about this, and in fact, they're they're mostly very good films. He yeah. seems to be unafraid to make himself the villain at times as well, which is interesting. Yes, yes. Which you saw Seven Days in May? I no, I didn't watch that one. I watched Alzheimer's Raid. Ah, okay. Um, and I I, I watched a bit of uh, Judgment at Nuremberg, but I mean, it was so dry. Um, yes. No, he often plays the villain, and actually. His first major one was opposite Gary Cooper and Vera Cruz. Because, you know, the last thing also, I suppose, that I want to mention, not the last thing, but another thing that I want to mention is that he was a very important Western star. Mm. He's a very important star of Westerns, right? So Vera Cruz was one of the sociological phenomena films of the 50s. It was a massive, massive hit, right? And he played the villain to Gary Cooper's hero in, in it. And then he also, another kind of huge success of the period was Apache, you know. And again, this is another thing about Burt Lancaster. You know, he played, you know, the persecuted Indian in, the, in this film. Uh, and also in Jim Thorpe, All-American, which is about a native person, yeah, who won the Olympics and had his medals taken away, yeah, and descended into alcoholism. But, you know, there's, like, he is a native person. He's an Indian and much is made of the oppression that he lives with as a result of it. So, you know, both Apache and uh, Jim Thorpe. And this is in the early mid-50s, right? Yeah, so, you know, it's not like something that will rupture the universe, 
but they're important contributions yeah, that he's making in his choices. Yeah, and he can make those choices because he's got the box office to make those choices. And they were all, and they all turned out into very uh, 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 successful films. Some of them, you know, the top successes of the year, like Apache, you know, was one of the top uh, ten films of the year. Vera Cruz, I think, you know, the very top uh, box office hits of the year, etc. Right. So you know, you begin to see strands. There's almost no junk in his career. Yeah. Right. There are films that work better, and there are films that work. Yeah, bad, uh, less well off. There's a lot of westerns which are almost always kind of guaranteed a certain degree of box office success, and it's where he'll move into in the latter part of his career. And you do have films like His Majesty O'Keefe and so on, which are kind of junky. <laughs> um, but there's very little of that. Mm. Yeah, I mean, even films like you know, uh, Flame in the Arrow, I think, and and Crimson Pirate are great. You know, uh, um, so. I think kind of it's it's an admirable career. And then the other thing that he does, which I think, you know, I mean, there might be other, uh, well, I know there are other American stars who went to work in Italy, but he didn't just go to work to Italy because he, you know, because he, he didn't have a job in America. He went to Italy as one of the top box office stars in America to work with Visconti. And then he made a whole series of what can only be called European art films, yeah? Uh, so was he a star um, in Europe from his... Because, you know, you talk about his American stardom and the way that his films wanted to open up dialogue in America about ideas. But, you know, did the, were those films successful in Europe? And was he a star in Europe? And did they do the same thing in Europe before he moved into Europe in maybe those later years? In those days, to be an American film star was pretty much to be a world film star, yeah? Because the film circulated all over the world. I mean, in Britain... You know, one of the things that's not very much discussed is, you know, that like British films at the British box office only accounted, you know, for 20 percent of the box office at most it varies from year to year. Right. But it was mostly American films that British people saw. Right. So kind of, you know, there's a skewed perception when you read about kind of British cinema, because you imagine that British cinema is what British people saw. Right. But actually, there's a difference between British cinema and British film culture, you know, and, and, you know, Hollywood stars were much bigger, you know, than any British star, maybe with a few exceptions of Dirk Bogart or somebody like that. Right. But, you know, to be an American film star, Hollywood was to be a world star, except that then, you know, people, particular stars have greater or lesser followings in individual countries. And Burt Lancaster had a great following in Italy. Right. Uh, you know, and it became even greater once he be worked with Visconti, because, you know, he first appears as a reference to a, a, a masculine ideal in Visconti's Bellissima, where Anna Magnani says, oh, Bert Lancaster. <laughs> and then, of course, he co-starred with Magnani. But then, you know, I mean, uh, The Leopard is one of the great classics of the cinema, like at the very top. Right. And he plays the prince of Salina in that, you know, the man who's watching the world he knows kind of disappear and trying to adapt to, to change. That's a beautiful, beautiful film. And then he also did the conversation with him. You know, then he, he did 1900 with Bertolucci, right, which again, I think is one of the great classics of world cinema. Uh, and then he did La Pelle with Liliana Cavani, right? So, you know, kind of these great Italian auteurs, uh, you know, and at least with Bertolucci and Visconti, 
you know, some of his most significant films. You know, he did also in Britain, Local Hero, which I think is one of the great British kind of films of, of, of the period. I mean, an amazing career, you know, with amazing choices. And the only period we haven't talked about is really the period of the late 60s, early 70s, where, you know, he's still a top star. Yeah, he's, he's getting $750,000 and 10% of the gross, which for those days was pretty much top dollar. Yeah. Um, but his stardom begins to wane. Yeah. So whereas before he was a, a box office guarantee, he really drops out of the box office top 10, I think around 64, 65. Yeah. Uh, so... You know, he does a series of Westerns. The Professionals is very popular. But then kind of, you know, the some of the rest of the films are not. He does Airport, which is one of the, I think it was the second box office hit of the year, uh, 1970, aside from Love Story. Yeah, but then he's working in all of these political films, really. The Scalp Hunters, yeah, which again is about race relations in the U.S., you know, was a moderate hit. Uh, this, the, the, the Swimmer, which was based on a John Cheever story and which, you know, is about kind of, you know, the American dream and the failures of it and so on, where he goes, he just swims from pool to pool across uh, uh, Westchester country, I think, Winchester country, county um, in Connecticut. Yeah, middle class, upper middle class kind of life. That was an enormous failure. Uh, um Castle Keeping, The Gypsy Moths were a failure. You know, Airport, a massive success, but it isn't really his film. It's an all-star film. And then he does these series of westerns that are just brilliant. Yeah, kind of uh, lawman, uh, in which he plays an inflexible kind of sheriff, really. Uh, Valdez is Coming, which again is about racism. Uh, Ozana's Raid which kind of, you know, is brings up kind of questions having to do with the Vietnam War, just like Castle Keep did, actually. Um, you know, and so by this period, uh, executive action, which is, you know, like the seven days in May, about an internal coup uh, in the United States. And then here he becomes, he his, his value as a box office star plummets. He is no longer somebody who guarantees box office. Yeah. So obviously he, he's a name. He, he continues to get high fees and he still has these vehicles built around them. Right. So, you know, films like Scorpio and The Midnight Man and so on, they're films made around him. Yeah. Often, which, you know, he has input uh, uh, into the writing and the screen uh, play and so on. Uh, the Midnight Man, he co-directed. He co-directed he directed The Kentuckian uh, in the 50s, and this was his second effort, very bad. Um, so, and then his career, yeah, kind of alters. So you can see he does a lot of all-star films, like The Cassandra Crossing, yeah. Uh, but his films are still political. Something like Twilight's Last Gleaming is precisely about the military hiding the truth from the American people in relation to the Vietnam War, right? Uh, uh, so, and Go Tell It on the Spartans is also about the Vietnam War. And then, of course, you know, you have these great late performances like Atlantic City, which harken back, you know, to his work 
uh, in noir. So in Atlantic City, he plays, you know, somebody who's running numbers, you know, but who's already like over 65, you know, who's actually a bit of a loser and he's being kept by, you know, a rich woman. But, you know, he falls in love with Susan Sarandon and he has one kind of last adventure, you know, to be the gangster he always wanted to be. It's really lovely and endearing and he's completely great in it. Yeah. But you can see the outline of a career. I don't think anyone, I can't think of an American star who's had a career like that. And particularly when you think of who um, his uh, uh, contemporaries were. Yeah. So you think of Kirk Douglas. Uh, you think of people like Gregory Peck or Tony Curtis or, yeah, kind of, if you think, because we have this, uh, you know, when we think of the 50s, a lot of people think of Brando or uh, a James Dean, yeah, or Montgomery Clift. But these were not the big box office stars of the period. I mean, even Brando does not figure in the top 15 box office stars, right? You know, it is older stars uh, uh, like James Stewart, uh, uh you know, or Henry Fonda appears, or it's kind of young people like Rock Hudson, yeah, uh, uh, and William Holden, you know, and Glenn Ford were like, you know, the big stars of the 1950s, and Lancaster, of course. Yeah? John Wayne as so, well. You know, what we, and John Wayne. So who we tend to think of as the 1950s were not de facto the most popular or, no, or most significant or, you know, I mean, they might have gotten maybe the most critical acclaim, yeah. But in terms of box office, yeah, kind of, uh, um, yeah. These are these are uh, the people. It's people like Burt Lancaster, right? And actually, the thing about Burt Lancaster is um, he often crops up. I mean, I think he crops up almost every year, actually, from about forty-seven till about sixty-five. But he'll often crop up at number nineteen or eighteen or twenty or yeah. And then actually there's a few years, three or four years where he makes the top 10. Yeah. But I think I think you barely see Brando in any of those lists. I don't. Yeah. If you look at the Quigley list of box office stars, which is kind of the official industry list. Um, so I'm, I'm just, I've done a control F on his name. So Burt Lancaster. So he's, he's 16th in 50, 25th in 51, 24th in 52. 17th in 53, then he's 13th, then 16th, then 4th, then 15th, then 20th, then not in the top 25, then 19th, then 11th, then 10th. See what I mean? You get a kind of a different picture, right? Uh, so, um, I mean, he's one of the top stars of the 1950s. He was sixth uh, of the, you know, when when um, they did it adjusted uh, uh, in adjusted figures. You know, he appeared in more box office successes than anyone. Um, but this is the official industry list. And you, you know, you can see that he really reappears throughout. And it's true that, you know, Marlon Brando appears more than I thought, actually. Um, but, you know, the other people that reappeared, the John Waynes, the William Holdens, the Gary Coopers, you know, the Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis, all those people, you know, it's like kind of, you know, when you think of the 1950s, you think James Dean, Marilyn Monroe, Elizabeth Taylor. Yeah. And yet, kind of. Well, yeah, that's kind of that's kind of what I was saying. Like Burt Lancaster, in my in my mind, is this kind of cultural absence from the history of cinema, despite the fact he was a big star. You know, yes. like so he 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 has kind of there's there's something 
that seems invisible about his presence these days, whereas they really shouldn't be. And that's what fascinates me, because he's someone who did very little junk, yeah, who made really intelligent choices. Many of them are moral choices, yeah, that involved risk. Uh, and he appears, arguably, in as many great films as any of his contemporaries. I mean, and not only in America, but actually in Europe. I mean, you know, The Conversation, The Leopard, 1900, Local Hero, you know, those are great masterpieces of European cinema, I think, right? Um, so... I don't like Local yeah. Hero. So boring. I love it. Oof, I, I love stop. it. And actually, I got a, a Blu-ray uh, of it, and what I'd forgotten is how astonishingly visually beautiful it is. Yeah, how Chris Menge's cinematography is just gobsmacking, and it's something that I'd never noticed when, when I first saw it, right? Because, you know, you're just focused on the quirkiness and the humor and, yeah, uh, uh, and you, you're not paying attention to just how magnificent it is visually. So let's then go to this question of, we've established kind of the, the, the variety of things that he did in his career and the power that he had and, and the, the morals, the morality which showed through his work. Um, but we've also kind of established that he is not someone who culturally is stuck in the mind like his contemporaries. So why is that? Why is that? I think because he represents the best of America. Yeah, I think he represents, you know, I mean, I think I think America had a period in the in the post-war period, you know, where it was not only seen as the most developed, the richest, most democratic country it had just won the war. You know, it was super rich compared to other countries. It was democratic. Right. And Burt Lancaster, with his body and his teeth and his smile, yeah, and also kind of, yeah, the the concern for social justice that most of his films demonstrated and advocated. It's something that doesn't sit well in our current conceptions of what America is, you know, this kind of... So, so you're saying that now, you know, like, it, like in the last five years, maybe, that kind of doesn't, doesn't match up well. No, no, not, not in the last uh, five years. I think I would argue it's post-Vietnam, post-Watergate, this idea of America. Right. You know, the idea of America changed with, you know, the Kennedy assass assassinations, Martin Luther King, the Vietnam War, Water Watergate. Those are all... So like, the kind of fall from innocence, the, the well, fall from innocence, is that the right term? The, 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 the Yeah, well, fall from innocence of America in that yeah. period, the end of the hippie era, Watergate, the Vietnam War everything becoming corrupt, evil, that, that coincided with a forgetting Burt Lancaster. There's a kind of cynicism in the culture now that doesn't jive with the um, earnestness yeah, hmm. of Lancaster's career, right? So Kate Buford, in her biography of him, uh, you know, the title is An American Life. Yeah, that kind of his life and his career is somehow also symbolic of America at a particular period. But the America of that period, yeah, which I think is really kind of, you know, has its roots in Depression America, you know, a, a, a Rooseveltian ideas of society, you know, the experience of war, you know, yeah, then the experience of kind of the, the economic prosperity, you know, what an American life, what was possible for an American life in 1950s, 
you know, and its kind of beliefs and its aspirations, they don't sit very well with us at the moment, right? And even though, you know, uh, Burt Lancaster was a rebel and a cynic, I mean, after all, he bloody worked in a carnival, you know, and he, he kind of grew into adulthood during the Depression. So, you know, there was a lot of sleaziness and hucksterism and what you need to get by and having to be street smart and so on, you know. But that was in relation to aspiring to ideals that were believed in. I don't think those ideals are believed in anymore. Do you think as well that in a, in a downturn towards cynicism, um, and quite a sharp one at that really, um, that his films would be looked back on as trifles? No, I mean, I think the opposite. I mean, I think, you know, particularly the noirs are kind of beloved, really. All the conspiracy films, right, like Seven Days in May, Executive Action and so on, you know, uh, um, definitely connect with our ideas. Uh, Twilight's Last Gleaming with our ideas of, you know, uh, civil war, government suppression, um, you know, his views on racism and his treatment of racism from, you know, Jim Thorpe to Apache to uh, the Sculp Hunters and so on. I mean, they jive in very much and I think people will find Valdez is coming, will find value in those explorations. I mean, I think uh, he's somebody ripe to be rediscovered because not only that, but really if you want to explore questions of aesthetic, questions of film form, genres, modes of distribution. Actually, I think, you know, Kate Buford says that, you know, she was talking to, to, to Neil Gabler, and he was saying, you know, if you really want to trace the changes in the American film industry uh, in the 1950s, trace Burt Lancaster's career, because he's key to the whole thing. Mm. Right. I suppose I was asking more, rather than what's there to be rediscovered by, you know, by, by cinephiles, people who are interested in, in digging for it, I meant more in the kind of popular conception of, of who he was and what his films were. You know, w- would, would the downturn towards cynicism have been a reason that people in general you know, wouldn't have paid so much attention to him, would have forgotten his films? Perhaps, I mean... I think there was a period where his films would have been shown on television and he would still have been alive in the popular imagination. I mean, his wife, in an interview, uh, which is on YouTube, says, you know, when I married him, and, you know, she, she was 40 and he was 70 when they married. It was like the, his last marriage. You know, uh, my son, his stepson, was asked to bring him over uh, to the school for a fundraiser and... There was crowds and people were collapsing with hysteria and so on. And then 20 years later, or, you know, or 10 years later, when Burt Lancaster was still alive, her grandson offered to bring Burt Lancaster to the school for a fundraiser. And the principal said, Burt who? (laughs) Right. But I mean, he's somebody who had a starring career for 50 years, 45 years, you know, um, and, and my experience, certainly as a teacher, is, you know, that uh, it's a generational thing, you know. Actually, in, within my own experience, and it's something now hard to believe, but, you know, I mean, when I first started teaching at Warwick, I remember telling, talking to the students about Jane Fonda. None of them knew who she was, mm. you know. I mean, she hadn't made a film by that point since, the, you know, for the last 10 years or 15 years, you know. Yeah, so... Mm. 
They didn't know, they simply didn't know who she was. So somebody who'd been so significant in the 60s and the 70s, you know, um, by the 90s, nobody knew who she was. And now, again, everybody knows who she is, right? So there's always, like, kind mm. of, you know, these ups and downs in, you know, how social knowledge is kind of circulate. I mean, sometimes they're just down. They never resurface, right? But I think Burt Lancaster is somebody who will resurface. He's so interesting. And he's such an interesting ideal of, you know, what it is to be a man, really, you know. Knock, knock. <laughs> Who's there? Burt Lancaster. Burt Lancaster who? <laughs> that show business. <laughs> we talk so much about um, what he did and what he represented and his yes. and the kind of size and, and scale and scope of his career. But I do want to kind of try and talk about actually what he was on screen as well, his performances. Because um, like I say, the one foot performance that really stood out to me was on the gantry. The rest, I kind of thought, clearly he... There's a lot of variety in his work. Um, and he plays a lot of different kind of roles and plays in different genres. Um, but does he have range, is a question. Well... I want to ask you. A... He's somebody who pushed himself more than any of his contemporaries, right? As I said, he did Miller, he did Williams, he did Inch, yeah? he did Radigan, he did Shaw, right? He did, he did classics, right? So, and I think he's very good in them. I think he's a brilliant actor. Right. He's, a, he's, a, he's a film actor, right? And one of the things that I think is often not given enough credit are... You know, so we tend to think of good acting as like conveying emotional complexity, mm. right, or interiority, right, which I think he also does, right, in a, in a lot of his films, yeah, uh, in The Leopard and so on. But I think what's, what's not appreciated about, you know, f what I consider important in film acting are things that have to do with being and moving, yeah, rather than just performing. Right. So, you know, uh, I think um, John Frankenheimer talks about directing him in a film yeah, where he was supposed to fall uh, off a motorcycle, you know, and he practiced to fall 56 times because how you fall off a motorcycle in a film is important. Right? It conveys all kinds of things. Right. Yeah. And it can be done in many different ways and it can be done with fluidity and grace or, you know, you can think of different effects that you want that fall to have on an audience. Right. Kind of. You know, traditional method actors will rarely think of, you know, rehearsing a fall 56 times. You know, they'll want to think about the trauma they suffered in childhood and how that connects to their character. It's a different type of thing, you know, but yeah. it doesn't make, you know, what Lancaster brings a lesser thing. And I think actually to me, it's kind of also key about acting in film. Yeah, mm. the things of, you know, kind of how you move, how you fall, how you perform athleticism, you know, how you walk, how you run could be like critical Right. And, and actually, Lancaster is somebody who took all of those things seriously. Now, what characterizes him also as different than other stars is that he's always conscious of the audience. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He is actually a showman. Right. Like kind of, you know, there are some bits in trapeze where, you know, he swings and, you know, the way that he falls and he looks at the audience and he smiles with those big teeth. He is, you know, he's conscious of an audience's pleasure. Right. And of communicating with an audience. Yeah. That kind of, you know, I mean, his whole training 
yeah, was to astonish, to delight, yeah, kind of an audience. And you see that in most of his performances. And again, that's different than our conception of acting or of good acting. But he not only did that kind of thing, you know, but he is somebody who always tried, who pushed himself kind of to do things that he had to fight for because, you know, he is not who immediately would come to mind to cast in Tennessee Williams, right? So he always had to push himself into those roles. And I think he did brilliantly, right? And it's very interesting to look at contemporary reviews, which were really sneery of him, you know, and to look at him now, because I think he's, he's absolutely, you know, fantastic uh, uh, opposite Anna Magnani in The Rose Tattoo. You know, he's got that physicality. I mean, you know, he reminds me of people I grew up with, you know. Uh, the way he talks, the way he moves, yeah, kind of, yeah, even his laugh, mm. yeah. But so, 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 but the kind of things you're describing, that that acting interiority, as you describe it, as opposed to acting, you know, the, the showman, um, is that saying that you know, is there kind of is there reasonable room for criticism um, of his abilities in that uh, register? Um, I think there might have been at the very beginning, right? Like uh, you know, in those noir films, like. You know, he is kind of, but not even, I mean, for example, in Criss Cross, yeah, that you saw, yeah, mm -hmm. uh, you know, that bit in the dance hall where he's just staring at uh, Yvonne De Carlo dancing, you know, and you could see all his jealousy and desire and, you know, and it's all acting with his eyes, really. And I think he's incredibly effective, you know, doing that in those early films, you know, and then for Louis Mal in Atlantic City or Visconti in The Leopard, you know, he's just magnificent. He's as great as cinema's ever offered, in my view. Do you think then that there is a barrier to accepting him as a quote-unquote serious actor because of his reputation, because of his, his image, that sort of thing? Well, perhaps, but I think, you know, an argument can be made because, you know, at the end of it, you know, and at the end of a career, you know, you leave all the faff and the noise and, you know, the <laughs> drum rolls. And what you have is the work, you know. Yeah. And I think, you know, anybody who's interested can look for themselves, you know. And I think there's nothing, there are a few things more delightful in cinema for me, you know, than watching him just move in The Flame and the Arrow, The Crimson Pirate and Trapeze. You know, I love kind of seeing him as this desiring man, in all of the noir films, because that's who he is. He often plays losers who love the wrong women. And they're very romantic films. And actually, also what's unusual about him is that he's treated as this desiring subject. But often, in the early films, you know, he is, he, he is there to be looked at, right? Like, his body is on full display. His body is part of what an audience pleasure in watching him is about in a way that is very unusual up to that point, right? So I think... He seems to also have people cast around him to help him stand out, it feels like to me. Well... Like, it seems like he has people, like, shorter people, for instance, people above whom he can stand and... and, and no, well, I know he was very, very tall. I mean, the thing about the shorter people, Nick Cravat was his partner in the circus, right? And so when you see him, that's what you see. And actually, the reason why they partnered up is because they thought there was something inherently funny, yeah, that pleased the audience about seeing such a tall man and such a short man perform acrobatics together, 
usually with the short man holding the tall man up. Yeah. So that's showbiz, you know. They reminded me of uh, Gaston and his little mate from Beauty and the Beast. Ah, remind, right. they, yeah. those, those two remind me of that quite a lot. And he's and back in Gaston that. is the whole I'm you know I eat seven dozen eggs and I'm as big as a barge and all the rest. That's that seems to be Burt Lancaster all over. Yes. Um, but just to go back to this idea that here is this magnificent work, you know, and the thing about him being cast, you know, opposite all these great people, you know, to be honest, a, a star of his um, stature, you know, would normally have boycotted those people because the whole thing is you want to look good. You know, and actually, mm. if you're acting opposite Barbara Stanwyck or Catherine Hepburn or Laurence Olivier or, you know, you risk making yourself look bad. So he was fearless. Yeah. Opposite Anna Magnani, Stanwyck, Hepburn. Right. I mean, you know, I was seeing this this kind of rather not very significant Western that he did called Lawman, you know, and in Lawman, he's opposite kind of Robert Ryan, uh, uh, J. Lee Cobb, um, Robert Duvall, right? I mean, some of the great actors of 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 those years, and he's unafraid. He 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 feels he can hold his own against them, and he does. <laughs> yeah, he was the um, Kira Knightley of his day. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about deflation. <laughs> Though I love her. <laughs> He's the AFI's 19th greatest male star. There you go. He sits in 19th, just beating the Marx Brothers, Buster Keaton and Sidney Poitier. Well, there you go. There you go. Uh, anyway, it's been for me, it's been kind of a joy because I have now seen all of his films up to 1985, excluding the work he did for television. Yeah, I, I haven't gotten to it yet. Um, and he's been a joy and a surprise and a discovery, you know, and by watching the career develop, you know, I've learned about different genres, about a mise-en-scene of stardom, about, you know, a changing aesthetic styles in Hollywood cinema, you know, kind of, you can do a whole course on, 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 um, you know, Hollywood cinema in all of its aspects through tracing his career, which I think is... And I'm sure you will... I will. <laughs> All right. <laughs> okay, thank you very much for doing this with me, Mike. Um, oh, you're welcome. Next week, every single Star Wars film, and I'll talk. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's leave it here. Uh, thank you very much for listening. We are eavesdropping at the movies, and we are on. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, and YouTube. On social media, we're on Facebook and Twitter. And the website is eavesdroppingatthemovies.com. Right, thank you very much. Bye-bye. <laughs>